This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, my name is William Lundy. I'm your host for this episode of The Law School Show. Our guest for today is Jack Dater. Mr. Dater is an Ontario licensed lawyer and former in-house executive with over 30 years of litigation, insurance claims management, dispute resolution, and executive uh, level leadership experience. He is currently the principal of the Mediation Place, an alternative dispute resolution company, and an arbitrator for a federal tribunal. Before that, he practiced 20 years in-house at a professional liability insurer, where he was the vice president of the primary professional liability claims department. Mr. Dater, welcome to the law school show. Thank you, William. Thanks for having me. You can call me Jack if you want. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy to to do this on a first name basis, and I do appreciate you having me here today. Sure. So you you obviously have a lot of experience dealing with professional liability claims, and I think um, something that some law school students may be interested in and maybe haven't given much thought to yet is uh, the the possibility that one day during their practices, uh, somebody will sue them. And just someone in law school thinking about that, that seems like it could be kind of a scary thing. Uh, I'm sure most law students haven't been sued yet in their lives. So why do people in the legal profession get sued and what happens uh, when that occurs? Well, from my own personal experience, having um, been in that field for many, many years, about 20 years at LawPro. And then in my private practice, prior to LawPro, I was also doing some insurance defense and some plaintiff's work. People get sued, lawyers get sued for a variety of reasons. Lawyers get sued pretty much in almost every area of practice. And generally speaking, the lawsuits involve allegations of negligence, negligent handling of the client's brief or the client's matter, and uh, anything that rises above negligence w- would be treated separately. Uh, for example, any misconduct, any uh, situations where a lawyer is being accused of doing something fraudulent or misappropriating funds, those types of situations are typically not covered under the insurance policy. Those would be dealt with by the law society in a different way. But when a lawyer gets sued, um, it's uh, obviously a high-stress situation for um, a lot of the practitioners out there who are Mm -hmm. facing a a lawsuit uh, because it's an attack on their personal integrity and on uh, you know the way they handled a particular brief for a client. So there's a lot of emotion involved. There's a lot of mm-hmm. stress, and that's what the insurer is there for. The insurer is there to pick up the ball and to basically quarterback the defense strategy uh, for the claim. And as I said earlier, the claim can come out of pretty much every area of practice. There are some that are more prevalent than others, but uh, in my time, you know. I saw claims in a wide variety of areas of practice, uh, including, you know, uh, areas where you might not think there would be 
much room for uh, a claim in negligence. But uh, lo and behold, you wake up one day, you come into the office, and there, there's the claim sitting on your desk. Mm-hmm. And are these um, negligence claims, is it very frequent that lawyers um, just make mistakes on the law, or are there other kinds of mistakes that, that people make and, and get sued for? Well, that's actually an excellent question, William. And, uh, you know, an insurer that has been around for a long time, like uh, uh, LawPro, used to be called Lawyers Professional Indemnity Company, LPIC, um, has a vast reservoir of data and metrics on the types of claims and the sources of claims. So, you know, what I can what I can tell you is that there are some areas of practice that uh, are more prevalent than others in terms of uh, claims activity. But um, a lawyer doing a brief um, can you know, be subject to a claim at any point in time, depending on the outcome of the brief that they're handling. Sometimes clients, after a matter is resolved, will go and get a second opinion, and the second opinion will be, oh, well, you know, you should have gotten this, you should have gotten that, your lawyer should have done this, and that may be the source of a claim as well. But I can tell you, uh, the overarching observation that I have, and these are my personal observations, I'm not speaking on behalf of LawPro, and I want that to be clear because I don't work there anymore. In my experience, it's failure to communicate that is the big uh, source of most claims. Errors in law are a, a subset or a, a more minor set uh, of uh, potential exposure to lawyers. Things like missed limitation periods, failing to communicate with the client in terms of what's going on uh, as, the, um, as the file progresses. Um, that's, that's big. And I say that's overarching because that bleeds into pretty much every area of practice. It's it's the the lawyer getting too busy and forgetting about the fact that they have a client and that they need to communicate with that client frequently in terms of what's going on. And also, they have to handle the brief. They can't just take a claim in um, or or a potential um, you know, matter for a client, uh, take it in, take a retainer, and then sit and do nothing with it. You have to actually do something for the client once you actually take on the retainer. Um, so communication is key. Uh, regular billing is key. Letting the client know what the terms are in terms of what it is the lawyer is going to do for the client and how they're going to be billed and how much the hourly rate is or whether they're going to be structuring their billing on a contingency basis or a block fee basis. All of that has to be laid out at the front end and if it's not, lawyers often find that they get themselves into trouble. And I can give you an example mm-hmm. uh, that kind of marries a failure to communicate with uh, understanding the, the terms of the retainer. Oftentimes, the lawyer will not clearly tell a client, um, and this is the communication part, uh, what they're going to do and how much it's going to cost. And then the lawyer doesn't regularly bill, and you know, six months, a year down the road, they send the client a bill, which is you know, exorbitant, 
Um, <laughs> and the client looks at the bill and goes, you know, holy bleep, you know, what is this? What have you done for me? I don't see anything. I don't see you know, a resolution. I don't see a statement of claim, whatever. And this becomes a potential issue, which severs the relationship. And then the lawyer turns around and sues the former client for unpaid fees. And then yeah. what does the client do? The client turns around and gets another lawyer who de who defends uh, the first lawyer's claim for fees and then counterclaims. And the counterclaim is going to say you were negligent. You didn't do anything for me or what you did do for me was substandard and you never told me what the terms of the retainer are and so forth. So it's very important, the communication piece. I can't you know, overstate that. As a lawyer, this is what you do. You accept retainers from clients in whatever area of practice you're going to be practicing in, and then you do the job. You make an assessment of what it is that needs to be done. You tell the client, this is my assessment. This is what I think you should be doing. And if the client says, yes, okay, I think that's that makes sense, uh, then you do it. You don't sit on the retainer and do nothing. Um, that's bad. And yeah. you don't uh, bill a client a year or two down the road for a whopping amount of money because that's just going to lead you into, you know, a, uh, a black hole of, of uh, issues when it comes to trying to get the client to understand why they're being uh, subjected to this bill uh, when little or nothing has been done to advance their claim. So that, that, that is an example of what can happen when a lawyer fails to communicate clearly with the client on the front end. And the other thing that I will say, and I can say it a hundred times between now and the time this tape stops running, always document your instructions in writing. Document, document, document. And I'm not saying paper your own file with your own personal notes. Send a letter to the client saying, we had a conversation on such and such a date. These are my, uh, this is my advice to you. This is what I think we need to do. Please confirm that you agree. And that is worth its weight in gold. Because when you're defending a lawyer who's being sued, if there's good evidence of communication and if there's good evidence of the fact that the client understood what was going on and agreed to what was going on in terms of the strategy on, on the file that the lawyer was handling, um, it'll be much easier to defend the lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of these cases where the claim is um, basically caused by a lack of communication. Is there ultimately actually negligence in a lot of these cases? Because um, from from what I understand so far in torts, uh, to prove a negligence claim, you have to show loss. And if it's just a matter of the um, lawyer doing work, but not, or uh, I assume doing work, but maybe not, I guess in some cases, do it, actually doing the work, but not communicating clearly with the client, it would seem to me that it would be difficult to prove a loss in those cases. How, how, does that situation occur? How, how does that play out? Well, what happens is when a claim comes through the door uh, at LawPro, 
and I should back up and basically say that, you know, to all the, you know, the budding new lawyers out there, uh, LawPro is a mandatory program. So it's not like you uh, start practicing and you can choose your your first layer of insurance with another carrier. LawPro is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Law Society of Upper Canada. It's a mandatory program It's or a captive program. And every lawyer in the province who is practicing law has to take their first million dollars of coverage through LawPro and pay the LawPro premium. So that is just a background. It's not like you can, you can choose between you know, LawPro and Zurich. You can do that at the excess layer, which is a whole different, uh, you know, a whole different regime of, of coverage. But at the primary layer, you're taking your insurance with LawPro if you're practicing law, unless there's an unless you fall into an exemption. So that's a background, just so everybody is aware of the fact that they really need to know who LawPro is and what we do. When a claim comes through the door, it's uh, you know it goes through a process of screening and it's ultimately assigned to a claims professional who then takes a look at the file. Uh, it's not every case where you know negligence is going to establish a loss. Uh, there has to be negligence on the part of the professional uh, related to the retainer that they were asked to conduct on behalf of the client and consequential damages that flow from the negligence that the lawyer is alleged to have committed in terms of the handling of the retainer. Uh, negligence in the air with no damages is not, you know, is not going to resolve result in the payment of a claim. So each case is assessed on its own merits, and if um, the decision after the initial investigation is that there is negligence that sounds in damages then that might be a, a claim that you try and move into settlement mode. And settlement mode can take various forms. It can take direct negotiation between a claims professional and the lawyer acting for um, a claimant uh, who's suing um, the law pro insured lawyer. It can take the form of two counsel negotiating, defense counsel and plaintiff's counsel. And that could be direct negotiation. It could involve a mediation. And occasionally, it could even involve uh, proceeding to an arbitration uh, to try and resolve the issues. The idea is, if there is a, a good claim against a lawyer, um, you don't necessarily want to run that all the way through you know, a trial and, and an appeal because... You know, those are expensive, lengthy processes. And if at the end of the day, the assessment is, you know, this claim is worth X dollars and you're going to pay X plus Y a bunch of defense costs uh, two years later just to defend a claim where you know that there's exposure, um, that just doesn't make sense. Um, so, so each case really needs to, you ha it has to be assessed closely. Um, claims professional outside counsel who's retained to investigate and to defend these claims has to provide an opinion. And all of this basically goes into the mix when it comes time to determining um, what direction the claim is going to take. 
Um, that's not to say that every claim is settled. Some are vigorously defended. Some have been defended through appeals to the Supreme Court of Canada. It really depends on what it is that you're you're dealing with when the claim comes through the door. Mm-hmm. And is there sometimes a tension between how law pro or the uh, the insurer would want to uh, proceed and the um, the insured lawyer? Uh, another excellent question, William. Um, think of an ins- think of it. Just think of it as any insurance policy. E and O insurance is, um, you know, a, an exclusive type of coverage in the PNC world afforded to professionals. Doctors have their own uh, type of insurance. It's more of a protective association. But you know, all professionals have some form of insurance that they have to take. Accountants, you know, even accountants, actuaries, doctors, dentists, um, chiropractors, they all have insurance. You know, try and think of it as any other insurance policy. So, you know, if you have a home and you suffer damage to your home and your insurer sends out an adjuster to take a look at what the damage was and it and the adjuster concludes that it's a pre-existing issue and that it's not covered. Well, you know, then you might end up in a dispute with your insurer over whether that, that should be covered. It's no different in the professional liability sphere. Um, in in the professional liability sphere, you know, the claims professional on the on the particular file and the defense lawyer retained to investigate and defend the claim may conclude that there's liability and the insured, you know, facing, you know, the potential liability on the claim may say, no, I don't agree with you. I don't want you to settle the claim. I want you to run this as far as you can. Um, In those situations, uh, the claims professional may decide to get a second opinion uh, from an expert um, in whatever area of practice we're talking about. And if the second opinion comes back that, yes, in fact, the lawyer faces exposure, that reinforces the, the position or the view that perhaps the claim should be tracked uh, in a settlement direction. Uh, if the insured lawyer still doesn't think that the claim should be settled, there is a provision in the policy, from what I recall, that allows the insurer to settle a claim without the insured's consent, and the insured can then arbitrate their own exposure under the policy uh, after the claim settles. And what I mean by that is um, most policies have a deductible, although there are options with regard to the deductible. And then there's another um, aspect called the claims history surcharge, which is essentially an extra premium that the lawyer would have to pay over a period of time uh, for uh, having had uh, a claim against them um, and, and a claim that has been paid against them, an indemnity payment. Once an indemnity payment is made by the insurer, the consequence is an increase in the premium. In addition to the base premium, the lawyer would have to pay an extra amount over a, a period of time. And this is this is really where 
the tension exists between an insured and an insurer. An insured is thinking, well, you know, this is going to cost me $17,500 out of my pocket if, uh, you know, if uh, the insurer settles the claim. Uh, I don't want to have to pay that. I don't think I did anything wrong. And that's where you get the, t- the, the tension. But ultimately, it's up to the insurer. The insurer has the right um, under the policy to settle without the insured's consent. And then that moves into a different process. That usually moves into an arbitration process between law pro and the insured with regard to the insured's exposure on the uh, the deductible and the surcharge. Mm-hmm. And um, you'd think that um, if people were wholly economically rational, that basically no claims would proceed to trial uh, because uh, both sides would make an objective assessment of the evidence and they would come to a reasonable conclusion about what the likely outcome was. And so the losing party would, you know, see the writing on the wall and not want to incur those costs. And so there would be, uh, it would just make sense to to settle. But obviously some cases do go to court and are litigated all the way. So why why does that happen? Well, it's a small percentage of cases that end up going to court through trial. And, you know, I always used to say that a case that ends up going to trial you almost consider those to be, you know, some sort of a failure in the system because, you know, rational people and rational minds, you know, would sit down and say, okay, this is going to cost us X dollars to take this through trial and appeal. There has to be, you know, some settlement value. But some cases just can't settle, and and the reasons are varied. Some, In some situations, you don't want to set a dangerous precedent by settling, a, you know, by, you know, by paying a claim because that creates a slippery slope. And what I mean by that is we're not talking about a precedent out there in the Ontario reports. We're talking about a a process-based precedent because one of the the fundamental principles running through insurance law, at least running through um, the insurance I was doing at LawPro, is that you you have to treat insureds fairly. And you have to to treat insureds um, similarly in terms of you know, how you handle claims. So no two claims are identical, but certainly you want to make sure that you're consistent in your approach to handling claims. So, you know, we, we, we strive to be consistent um, when it comes to the actual claims handling function. Um, but there are situations where you look at something and you go, you know, this, this has to be tested, you know, this is not the type of claim where we think we should be settling the matter because we don't see any exposure to the insured or it's a novel issue and you want the court to rule on it. Um, So not every case is right for settlement. Um, And uh, when we decide that we're going to vigorously defend a claim, you know, we mean it. And, you know, we stand behind the insured and we take it as far as we have to take it. And, you know, that may 
end up resolving after discoveries, that may end up resolving at a mandatory mediation session, or it may actually have to go through to a pretrial before uh, before there's any sort of resolution. If that can't happen, then it goes to trial, and we see where the chips fall. And if the if we don't like the outcome of the decision at a trial, then you know, then we consider options for appeal. But that's the small percentage of cases. I would say, by and large, the vast majority of cases do settle somewhere along that timeline between issuing the claim and, uh, and uh, the courtroom steps. Because most claims do have some sort of settlement value to them. But, you know, again, each case has to stand on its own and has to be assessed on its own. So... You know, if you ask me, well, were you, you know, were you guys busy, you know, um, you know, instructing counsel, instructing counsel who are taking these these cases through to a trial? I would say, yeah. I mean, over the years that I was there, I saw enough cases going to trial, both in my own portfolio and as a VP looking at other files and green lighting files to go to trial. Uh, sure, you know, because. The ones that go to trial, you determine have to go to trial because you don't think that the lawyer did anything wrong, and that's where the that's what young lawyers need to appreciate. It's not, you know, if you get sued, you wake up one day and somebody knocks on your office door or wherever, and you're handed a statement of claim with you <laughs> showing up as one as a defendant or the defendant. You have to report those to Law Pro. You can't, you know, you can't sit on that or god forbid you know try and take any steps uh, to do something directly that could prejudice or jeopardize your coverage you need to report these claims to your professional liability insurer so that they can take a look at it and they can assess what needs to be done it's not in every case that you know law pro is going to say Eh, you're negligent. We're going to pay this, and you owe us whatever you know your deductible and your and your claim history surcharge the, that add-on premium. Some cases will be defended, um, so you know new lawyers shouldn't be afraid of you know law pro. And new lawyers have to understand that in a career that spans thirty or forty years, there's a good likelihood that you're going to end up seeing a claim with your name on it at some point in time. Some people call that a badge of honor. You know, if you haven't been sued, then, you know, what have you been doing in the profession if you haven't, uh, you know, faced at least, you know, one lawsuit over over the life of your career? Yeah. I'm being a little facetious when I say that because there are a lot of lawyers who practice for 40 or 50 years and never see a claim. Um, interestingly, that doesn't mean that they haven't made errors. That just means that the errors that they may have made on, on briefs um, over that time period haven't come to the fore mm -hmm. you think about a real estate file it could take 30 years before or 20 years before an error is noticed on a chain on the chain of title um, so some of these claims or potential claims just lay in the weeds forever and some never actually rear their heads it's like uh, you, you just don't know um mm -hmm. and I, I mean sometimes people uh get um sued and they actually didn't do anything wrong and mm -hmm. one wonders is is that you know is it frequent that you get these these frivolous uh lawsuits with people just uh, i mean some people are very litigious um maybe 
uh, in Canada, we have a less litigious culture than, for example, in the United States. But uh, you, you hear uh, sometimes people just sue their lawyers, they sue the government, they sue. Is, is that a lot of the claims or, or, or is that kind of more of a rare thing? No, that's, um, you know, there there are certainly claims of that nature. There's a percentage of them. I can't recall what that is. But uh, in situations like that, you'll often find, you know, that the claimant in those cases is self-represented because they can't find a lawyer to take that kind of claim. And when they sue, you know, their former lawyer, they're also suing the prime minister and the queen of England. And yeah, I mean, when those types of claims come in, you can, you can pretty much tell um, from the get go that they're frivolous just because of the way the, the claim is written or because of who's, you know, in the title of proceedings, you just know. And in situations like that, what normally happens is LawPro will retain outside counsel to bring a motion to strike the claim um, or to strike vast quantities or portions of a claim where there are things that are alleged or pleaded that shouldn't be in a pleading. Mm-hmm. And, you know, motions for summary judgment were fairly frequent. The success rate, from what I recall at LawPro, was pretty high. You don't just frivolously bring a motion for summary judgment just to bring the motion, because as you probably know, interlocutories cost a lot of money. So when you do that sort of thing, you're doing it with a purpose because you've assessed a claim and you, you realize that, you know, there's just nothing to it or that it, you know... <laughs> It's it's written in a way that almost invites you to uh, to bring that that sort of motion. Self-represented claimants, um, we saw more and more of them over the years because, you know, for a claimant wanting to bring an action against a lawyer, they have to hire another lawyer or they have to consider that, and that can be very expensive. So, uh, a lot of people are going it on their own, which creates a whole host of other issues that have to be dealt with. But certainly um, those are the ones you look at very carefully because those are the ones where you actually find the frivolity or the, you know, and, and the vexatiousness. Um, the other type of frivolous claim is the, I was mentioning it earlier where the lawyer is suing a former client for fees for unpaid fees. And then the client turns around and says, well, I'm not paying you the fees in a counterclaim because you were negligent. And oftentimes those counterclaims alleging negligence against the lawyer are just a stall tactic or maybe more, mm-hmm. maybe an invitation to sit down and try and work something out, like to try and settle the, the outstanding fee issue. Sometimes there merit, there, there's merit to them. Sometimes, you know, you look at it and you go, yeah, well, you know, client has a point here you know you in the counterclaim you didn't do this or you didn't and you didn't do that or you should have done this and what happened here so you know they, they're looked at but oftentimes that's where you kind of see uh, you know frivolous vexatious litigation in, in pleadings like that mm-hmm. and um so, so a lot of claims get settled and that requires uh both sides to sit down and talk to each other and you know sometimes that um goes or occurs sooner rather than later sometimes that um is is done more effectively uh than in other cases what so so you know (laughs) so 
somebody suing their lawyer, uh, you'd assume they're very upset and that um, they're probably not in the mood for making concessions. And a lawyer who thinks they've done nothing wrong is also um, probably not, uh, they get that, they're maybe very <laughs> upset because it's an attack on their you know, professional credibility. So how do you get these you know, parties to sit down and you know, come to an agreement? Well, um, back in the old, old days, um, there was a mandatory mediation program that started up, um, and there was actually mandatory mediation in the rules of civil procedure, which said that mediations had to occur at a very early point in time in the litigation after the, uh, the first offense was filed uh, too soon, because a lot of those mandatory mediation mediations um, didn't result in any sort of resolution. It was just too early in the process, especially when you're dealing with complex issues in a, you know, in a professional negligence lawsuit. So fast forward, the rules were changed to basically say that, you know, the key to getting a trial date is to uh, confirm that you've had a mediation session at some point in time uh, throughout the life of a file. And that tends to be where um, a lot of cases settle, either at mediation or at a pretrial, just before a trial is about to begin, when you know another judge takes a look at it and gets the parties together. Um, direct settlements through negotiation, uh, they happen, but they're probably less frequent than uh, where a settlement dialogue is guided by a third-party neutral. Third-party neutrals have grown significantly. That whole profession has grown significantly over the years uh, to a point now where there are many, many, many people out there, you know, doing mediations in pretty much every area of practice as well. But emotions run high, you know, uh, from the beginning of a lawsuit right to the end. I mean, sometimes you're in a mediation with uh, the other side, and, you know, it might be a year, year and a half, two years later, and emotions are still high because you're right. You know, the plaintiff thinks that they have a legitimate claim in negligence against the lawyer. The lawyer basically says, well, you know, it's my professional integrity. I didn't do anything wrong. And uh, usually there's, you know, a, a meeting place. There is a point at which a claim can 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 be settled if, if if there's if there's some negligence on the part of the professional it's just figuring out what that is if the lawyer did something wrong and you know the insurer assesses the potential damages for whatever the lawyer did wrong at you know 25 30,000 dollars but the plaintiff is insistent that their damages are a million dollars that might not be a claim that can settle even though there's exposure, that might not be a case that can settle. That might be a case that ultimately has to go to trial on, on the damages, um, because, you know, there may be negligence, but the claimant's expectations are wildly out of line with uh, the insurer's assessment of where the exposure is. But when the parties can meet somewhere where there's that intersection in terms of what a plaintiff wants and what the insurer and the insured are prepared to pay, then that's the sweet spot where you can actually, you know, hammer out a settlement. And there's an art to that. 
there's definitely an art to that. There's a time and a place for everything when it comes to these types of lawsuits. And sometimes it necessitates having an independent, well-trained, third-party neutral um, assisting the parties to get to that to get to that place. Or as Yuri and Fisher would say, to get to yes. Great book. It's the, the, it's the, the earliest or one of the earliest handbooks on, on mediation, getting to yes. Highly recommended. Mm-hmm. And um, from what I recall from the book, you know, part of the, the idea there is, um, is to uh, negotiate based on the uh, interests of the parties rather than you know, taking a position and just trying to defend that um, no matter what. So, but in these cases where it's sort of just, um, you know, it's a question of dollars, how much, you know, one party pays is the amount that the other party gets. Is there really a lot of room for maneuvering uh, if it's, you know, basically kind of one party's gain is the other's loss in a negotiation. How do, how do you maneuver in those kinds of situations so that it's um, more likely to get a, you know, a yes from both parties? Well, if the parties are close in terms of their assessment of damages coming into a mediation, you might not even need the mediation. You might just be able to hammer out something between counsel. It's where the parties are far apart in terms of their expectations, either on liability and or damages. That's where the mediator comes in to play. Um, that's where the mediator gets paid the you know the bucks they get paid to do the job. And what you find, they call it, oftentimes they call it shuttle diplomacy. So you have your mediation where the parties are in the same room at the beginning of the session, but then they break out into caucus rooms and the mediator just shuttles back and forth between the different rooms, you know, basically taking positions and offers back and forth until you get to a place where there's an overlap in terms of, you know, what plaintiff wants and what uh, defendant is prepared to pay. So it's not as simple as just, okay, you know, they want X, let's pay them X. Or, I mean, it, 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 it's more nuanced than that. And sometimes there are other non-monetary factors that come into play too in the context of a settlement. It's not always just dollars and cents, especially when you have mul- multiple parties involved in a lawsuit. Uh, then you get into some other issues that may actually come into play as well. But you said something earlier that's interesting about the type of mediation. There's the, and the, or the types of mediation. There's the more facilitative approach, which I think is what Yuri and Fisher really talk about. But there is an evaluative approach as well. And you know, what I found um, in my time doing that kind of work is that um, a more evaluative mediation model tended to work better in the context of professional liability claims than a facilitative model because you know when a professional is being sued they often want to hear it from a retired judge at a mediation or someone who you know or a senior practitioner mediator um, that they 
they made a mistake and what the mistake they made and why why it's considered a mistake. That's more evaluative when you're asking a mediator to kind of almost give, you know, an opinion in caucus, not in open session with the other party there, you know, sitting in a room with the lawyer and and the counsel and the law pro claims professional mediator coming in saying, you know, I think if you take this to, to trial, you're probably not going to win because I think that, you know, this is this is the, the Achilles heel. This is where you could have done better or this is where you could have done something different. This is where you you made your mistake. That's evaluative. That's not facilitative. And um, that approach, in my experience, tended to work better um, on these types of claims. Um, it takes a lot of convincing sometimes to convince a professional who's been in the profession for many, many years and has never suffered a claim uh, that, you know, lo and behold, they may have done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a reason for that too, William. And I'll tell you what, again, you know, this is going back to statistics. The lawyers that get into trouble tend to tend to be the ones at the early stages of their career when you're ripe to make mistakes in terms of what you're doing. And the ones who've been in the profession maybe a bit too long. Um, the ones who've been around, you know, for decades. And they're getting close to the end of their career. And that's when you see the mistakes being made. So, um, and it's, you know, it's hard to tell a lawyer who's been in the profession for 40 or 45 years, you know, sorry, Joe, you, you missed the ball on this one. Uh, especially one, especially a lawyer who's never suffered a claim before. So, yeah, it, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of sensitivity there, um, when it comes to these things. And, uh, I found that for professionals, they want to hear it from another professional who they trust and who they respect, i.e. a retired judge or another senior practitioner that, maybe they could have done something differently as opposed to a more facilitative approach, which, you know, stays away from making that kind of assessment. Mm-hmm. And are there, are there things that counsel for, for plaintiffs or, or claimants can do to make the likelihood of a successful or increase the likelihood of a, early successful uh, settlement? Um, are there things that they do that frequently disrupt that possibility? Well, I think, you know, it depends on the approach that counsel takes when it starts its claim. A claim that, you know, pleads all kinds of frivolous and vexatious things and doesn't stick to the facts a claim that is wildly out of line with anything reasonable in terms of damages that's inflated, those types of claims don't help uh, settle a matter early. A claim that actually you know, tells the facts, tells the plaintiff's story, uh, assesses you know, why or, or says, states why they think the lawyer made a mistake, um, and is reasonable in terms of the damages expectation, you know, those claims may stand a better chance of an earlier resolution, assuming that the insurer 
agrees that there's negligence. Um, and those are the kinds of things that, you know, plaintiff's lawyers often don't do. They will overstate the case. They will inflate the damages. They will bring all kinds of interlocutories. They will, they will just make it as disruptive and difficult as possible to try and resolve the case. When an insurer does that sort of thing, when an insurer brings a motion of, the, of that nature, it's usually for good reason. And I mentioned it earlier where you have a self-rep who's you know, suing everybody, including you know, Winston Churchill and the Queen of England and, <laughs> and God knows who. Those have to be dealt with in a certain way. And the way they're dealt with is you know, a motion to, for summary judgment or to strike vast quantities of a claim like that if there's anything in the claim that's meritorious. You don't want to overstate, you know, sometimes you have to look at a claim that, you know, seems incredible because buried in there, there might actually be something legitimate that a court is not going to strike out. But, you know, oftentimes you'll look at these things and this, this is, you know, they're written in crayon. It's, and, you know, they have like cut and paste stuff in them. It's, 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 it's just madness. And, you know, that type of pleading has to be dealt with in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, you, you've written that um, one of the stumbling blocks to, to successful mediations is that uh, sometimes there there isn't um, proper uh, authority at the bargaining table. How, how does that happen, and how, how do you deal with that? <laughs> you read my blog. You're one of the five people. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, William. Okay, so settlement authority is very important. In, a, in any insurance company, the people who are handling the claims will presumably have authority. They'll have limits of authority. Um, and when the claims professional, before the claims professional goes on a mediation, they need to make sure that either they can settle the claim within whatever their monetary authority is, and if they need more, then they have to go up you know, to the next, they have to go up the ladder to whatever level they need. So, you know, if if a claims professional thinks it's going to take $700,000 to resolve a claim, they may, they may need to get VP approval for that before they go to the mediation. Uh, the last thing you want is to have someone show up at the mediation without settlement authority, because then what's the point? Um, and, you know, sometimes that settlement authority can be at the other end of a, of a phone call. That's okay. As long as there's somebody out there that the claims professional can call, uh, throughout the course of the mediation for more money, if they need it, that's fine. But when somebody shows up at a mediation without settlement authority, because they think that, you know, that, they don't need it, but it turns out that they do, that becomes a problem. So taking a good hard look at the case, knowing what the damages expectations are, knowing what, you know, where your settlement range is and making sure that you have the authority to work within that range is very, very important. Yeah, that, you know, that's pretty much it in a nutshell when it comes to settlement authority. You need to bargain in good faith when you're when you're at the mediation table and the last thing the mediator wants to hear is you know that the person sitting there doesn't have the authority to actually get the deal done Mm -hmm. and it may be sometimes this happens well you know 
I didn't ask for any more authority because I don't think the case is worth more than X, which is within my authority. Fine. I mean, if it's really a damages issue, then, you know, maybe the assessment was accurate. Maybe the claims professional, you know, and whoever else they're reporting to agreed before the mediation that, you know, we are not paying anything more than this amount of money, which is within your settlement authority. But that's the conversation that has to happen. The claims professional needs to, you know, in conjunction with outside counsel who's there as well, because most claims and litigation against lawyers involve uh, law pro retaining outside counsel to defend the claim. Um, that damages assessment should be done very early on. Um, and if it needs to be tweaked as you progress through the handling of the, of the file of the lawsuit, then you do so. Um, so that by the time you get to the mediation, which is usually far along, far enough along in the process, um, uh, from you know from the issuing of the statement of claim you would know at that point what what you're what you're likely looking at in terms of a of a of a settlement amount and mm-hmm. and you better be at the table with the authority to um you know to make to get that deal done or with the ability to phone somebody who can give you that extra money if you need it mm-hmm. for a plaintiff it's different i mean for a plaintiff um they may come into a mediation with these wild expectations about what they think their claim is worth, which have been fanned or fueled by their lawyer. Um, it's up to the mediator to temper that and and defense counsel to temper those expectations. Um, so, and you often see lawsuits against lawyers because they've overstated the the client's expectations in a lawsuit against a, a professional in, in their lawsuit against the, the, the professional. And they didn't get what they thought that they were going to get, or the lawyer took, you know, most of the settlement in fees. <laughs> so yeah. then the client goes or turns around and sues the lawyer saying, well, you, you were negligent in the advice you gave me, you told me that this claim was worth this and that I was going to get this. And, and it goes on and on. Mm-hmm. see everything when it comes to that kind of work because as you can imagine you're the only insurer out there first instance uh, or first layer of insurance in a profession where people are practicing you know everything from you know criminal law refugee law family law to mergers and acquisitions to tax law to real estate law civil litigation the whole spectrum and the claims come in in pretty much every area of, of practice. So mm-hmm. so what we used to say and the way the way we used to think about it and the way you should think about it is that the lawsuit against the lawyer is the claim within the claim. What I mean by that is the lawyer was retained by the client to do X, whatever X is, real estate transaction, whatever. In the handling of that retainer, the client realized that the lawyer did something wrong. So then the lawyer gets sued for mishandling that original retainer. And the lawsuit against the lawyer is the negligence claim within the, with, within whatever it is they were supposed to do within that original retainer. So it's the claim within the claim you're assessing 
not only the claim against the lawyer, but you're also having a good hard look at the original retainer and what it is the lawyer was supposed to do, what they contracted to do and what they didn't do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, you're uh, vice president there for, for a number of years. I, I imagine that the sort of the challenges on the, the skill set that you have to deal with at the executive level w would differ from the skills you apply in sort of uh, regular legal practice. So can you talk about that? Like, was there a, a steep learning curve or was, uh, was it actually just a very natural sort of shift? W what was it like? When I started, I was a claims examiner, and they changed the name over the years. We became claims professionals. And at that, at that stage, you're handling files, and you're being overseen by a supervisor or a manager. Over the years, I became a senior claims professional where I was overseeing maybe specific parts of the book of business of the types of claims that came in and maybe had one or two people uh, I was mentoring. I became a manager. They changed that name to director where I ran a unit within the claims department. And within my unit, there were a number of claims professionals and some, and, and some admin staff. And those people would report to me my file my file count would go down because i was uh, i was in an overseeing function and then ultimately i was successful in becoming the vp claims for the professional liability department primary professional liability department and that's kind of you know the top of the heap um Look at it as a pyramid. You know, at the bottom, you're handling all kinds of files. As you move up the pyramid, you're maybe handling less files, uh, overseeing some people. And then when you're at the top of that pyramid, you're basically you're not handling any files. You're just basically managing people. And at that point, the people that are reporting to you as the VP are your managers, your direct reports, and they in turn have people reporting to them and so on. And that's that, you know, that's the structure of it. The skill set is a skill set. Some people say it's, you know, you're either born, you're either born a leader or, you know, or if you're lucky enough and you can become a leader just by paying attention to, you know, what needs to be done as you progress through your career, then then you can you can learn those habits. It's a different skill set. That's that's pretty much all I can say. Whether it's something that you inherited from birth or whether it's something that you learn over time. There are good leaders, there are bad leaders. And I think, you know, the hallmarks of a good leader are being being humble, having, you know, have having an open door policy, being there to mentor people, being, you know, tough on the issues and not on the people, forcing people to learn the, the people that are reporting to you. Very important. Instead of being the person to whom they come for the answer, they should be coming to you with a suggested answer that then you may, you might want to discuss. Um, I, I didn't like the approach of just handing people information. 
Um, mine was more, it was, again, it's about communication. It was about communicating with uh, my direct reports and getting them to tell me what they thought the approach should be or the strategy should be, and then moving on from there to, to finalize whatever that approach was going to be or to tweak it if necessary. You know, and it's a personality comes into it too. If you're a people person, if um, if you're not volatile, if you're calm, I think those are good traits um, in in leadership. Um, you have to be sensitive that you're dealing with different people who may, um, you know, who all obviously have you know different personalities. Some may be more volatile, others not, but you just have to know who you're dealing with when you're when you're running a department in a, in a busy company and you have to sometimes adjust your approach depending on who it is but um, by and large you you know you can't change who you are you can just adapt who you are to the situation that you're dealing with and um, um, mm-hmm. I always found that you know for me, you know, a softer, more conciliatory approach worked best. You know, people would come to me because they knew my door was always open. People would call me if I wasn't in the office because they knew that I would I would always answer and that they would always be able to get direction from me. Um, and, you know, I would give them whatever time it took to deal with whatever the issue was that, that they were dealing with. Um, so the biggest change is, you're dealing with a lot more administrative stuff at the higher end when you're in that role. You're dealing with the executive group. You're dealing with the board of directors. HR issues can take up a lot of your time when you're running a department. Um, hiring people, mm-hmm. you know, letting people go, dealing with people who need accommodations, all of that kind of thing. You know, A lot of that falls on the person who's heading up a department if the issue comes from your department. And you're also dealing a lot more with um, with uh, people in other departments as well. If you're working on projects that bleed into you know other departments where you need to get a team of people together from the various groups within the company, the various stakeholders, to talk about how you're going to approach something, tweaking a piece of software, whatever, you just see the bigger picture at the higher level. You see, you see the organization from the top of the mountain and it starts to make sense you start to put all the pieces together and then you start you sit there and think oh okay and now i know why we need you know the finance department now i know why we have an actuary and you know why we have uh, an underwriter and what they do and how what they how what we do in claims impacts what they do that's you know that's critical and the sooner you understand that, the better. Um, but at the higher level, certainly you need to, uh, you know, to have a good sense of the business of the organization, and not just, you know, the business of the claims department within the organization. And and the one thing, the one the one other thing I'll say about leadership is, um, you can read all the books you want on leadership, but, you know. You have to embrace leadership as a concept, and you have to you have to do a lot of introspection and 
reflection on who you are and how you want to project yourself as a leader. Um, some people do a great job at it. Some people not. Some people, you know, when they start on that path, it takes a little bit of time before they, they, they feel confident. And that's fine because it is a different skill set. But uh, really, really, you know, pay attention to and, you know, do a lot of thinking, introspection about leadership and the kind of leader that you, you know, that you want to be. Um, and um, read whatever you think you need to read if, if that's going to help. But just develop your own style. And my advice is to develop a style that's, you know, inclusive and that's open, that's fair, you know, volatile leadership. It, it's just, it's very difficult to work, in my opinion, to work for someone who, who is like that, who you never know, depending on the day, whether they're going <laughs> to, whether they're going to be a, a volcano or, you know, a calm stream. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me, you know, that's that that's not good leadership. Someone who's consistent, someone who's who you can count on, who you can rely on, who you can depend on, who you can trust, who's sound in terms of the advice they give. Um, those are the the signs of good leadership. And someone who's creative, you know, someone who will allow, you know, an employee to run with something in a different direction if it, you know, if maybe it seems like a good idea or if it makes sense to do that or just to test something. Um, that's good leadership because you want the people below you to grow. You want the people to, below you not to, you know, to work in fear. Uh, you want them to be able to express their views um, openly because that's where the, that's where the juice is, my friend, you know, in the collective ability of people to brainstorm ideas to, you know, with the view with the view or the idea of achieving the best possible result. Mm -hmm. And um, I um, imagine when you're an executive, um, you have to make decisions and sometimes you have difficult decisions to make or tough calls to make. Uh, so how do you, when you have one of these difficult decisions to make, how do you, how do you, uh, how did you deal with that? If we're talking about a difficult decision on a file, or are we talking about a, dif a difficult decision in terms of an individual um, who may be underperforming? There are a lot of different difficult decisions that have to be made at that level. In the context of a file, then, you know, you might want to reach out to another colleague. You might want to call up counsel on the file because it's not your file. If you're, if you're a VP and if you're wondering whether or not you should be greenlighting a trial or an appeal or whether you should be settling something and you're not so sure about it, well, you have resources. You can speak to the claims professional. You can call a meeting with uh, the claims professional and their manager and the outside counsel to talk about the file um, if you have questions as the VP who's going to have to either sign off on a big settlement or who's going to green light a trial it all falls back to communication. Um, if you're having difficulty making a decision, then you probably don't have enough information in front of you to do that. 
And, you know, that may be because, you know, the, the memo that you're looking at, that's going to form the basis of the decision that you're going to make in terms of settling something or taking something to trial might be lacking. There might be things missing from that. And that's fine. I mean, that's why you can call a meeting and you can sit down with everybody and you can get at whatever it is that's bothering you about the, 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 the claim in order to allow you to make that decision. If it's a human resources kind of situation, I mean, this person's really underperforming. I don't know what to do. Well, you have mid-year reviews. You have performance reviews every year that you can sit down and talk to the person about. And you can just call the person into your office if, if it's your direct report. And you can basically say, look, you know, there's an issue. There's a situation. We need to talk about it. Um, I wouldn't. You know, when it came to that sort of thing, I wouldn't all I wouldn't wait until a performance review. You want to deal with an issue when it comes up. Um, you might revisit it during a performance review, like one of the formal reviews that you have. I think there were two a year, mid-year and end of year. But being a mentor means being there to guide people and to deal with the tough issues when you have to deal with them. And you can't shy away from that. And if it was a kind, if if it's a kind of issue where you think you might need to involve somebody else, like someone from HR, then you have to have that kind of meeting. You have to call that meeting. You do it confidentially, of course. Um, and then you go from there. If somebody says something outlandish in a in a meeting that you hold as the VP, and I would have regular meetings with my direct reports. If somebody says something outlandish or offside, then you call that person into your office after and you have a chat with them. Um, the one thing you don't do is you don't kind of point it out in front of, a, of, of the whole group. Um, and, you know, cause that, you know, that's embarrassing for the person. You just have to be sensitive. You have to deal with things in a sensitive way, but you're going to come across situations where you have to make tough decisions and, and, so be it. I mean, if the decision is that somebody isn't performing and that there's a long enough history of that that you're going to have to invite them to, to leave, then then you have to do that too. But you usually tee that sort of thing up with, uh, with HR. And there's a lot of dialogue that would go into that before that actually happens. There's a lot of discussion. You know, there's – you may have to give – you know, a series of escalated warnings to a person who's underperforming. Um, it, it all depends. It's very situational. The idea or the approach, you know, be consistent in your approach and be calm and uh, reach out for the for the help you need in order to, to make whatever decision it is that you have to make. Mm -hmm. And so you've, you've had a, a varied career. You... Um, You've worked at a big firm. You you had your own practice for a while. Um, you worked in house, and yep. and now you're doing um, uh, mediation. Do, do you have advice for law students starting out their careers? Actually, yes, I do. You might not know when you start this journey uh, in law what it is that you want to do. You may think you know at the beginning. Um, and as I said earlier, some people, they know, and that's what they do right from day one. But other people tend to wander into the law because in the world of humanities, it's one of the more lucrative things you can do if you can get into law school. Um, you know, 
it's um, you know it's a launching path into a host of options available to you once you're through the process. And what I mean by that is um, you don't necessarily have to you know go to law school and come out of law school uh, being a private practitioner working at a big firm on Bay Street or wherever. That's just one one of the many options. And what I would advise young lawyers at, you know, at your stage or lawyers to be um, is to keep your options open. A lot of people, you know, they're, they're slavish about wanting to go through law school and wanting to get a job at one of the big firms because that's what everybody does. And it's a sign of success if you work at a big firm and, you know, one of the seven sister firms downtown Toronto, you know, then you've made it. But, you know, you find that a lot of people who think that that's what it's about, you know, a couple of years in, realize, no, this is not where I want to be. This is not what I want to do. I don't want to be working these hours. I don't want to be doing this. I, you know, I want something different. Maybe better to make that assessment or to have that, you know, conversation with yourself or with, uh, you know, a mentor at an earlier stage and make try and make a decision as early as possible so that you're not making those kinds of mistakes. I started out in private practice. I spent 10 years there and I decided that, you know, I wanted something, uh, they used to call it work-life balance back then. I don't know what they're calling it these days, but to me, you know, after 10 years, it was a difficult system. The litigation system was broken. It was taking a long time to get anything or to get anywhere you know, lots of interlocutories, the clients were getting more difficult, the lawyers on the other side were getting more difficult, the masters didn't even want to be there, the judges, you never knew what you were going to get, and the hours were, you know, were significant. And I thought at a certain point in time, this is just, this isn't for me. Um, And that's when I went in-house, and I spent my 20 years in-house, and that created a lot of opportunities for better work-life balance. You got to get out and smell the roses. You got to you got to enjoy your life because work is just one one aspect of it. It's important. I mean, you want to earn enough money to you know provide for yourself and your family, but it's um, it's just one aspect. And you know, money ain't everything. Lawyers can do very well, but uh, you can get very very sick in the process if you don't look after yourself and look after your your health. And when I say your health, I'm not talking just about, you know, pounding it out on a treadmill. I'm also talking about your mental health. So um, it's really, really important to try and figure out as early as possible what the path is going to look like for you. And that's not to say that you have to stay, you know, stay the course on that path. If, you know, a lot of people have, you know, changes at a certain point in their career, they decide this is not what they want to do. I was one of them. Um, but I, you know, make when you're making those kinds of changes, try and make sure that you're making them for the better. Try to make sure that the changes you're making are going to fit into whatever lifestyle you want to live. Uh, for me, it was more work-life balance. The idea of mediating at this stage, I guess a lot of lawyers who've been around a long time when they're kind of pulling back on whatever it is that they were doing, whether it's private practice or in-house, they 
move in the direction of mediation and arbitration. It's almost like a way of giving back to the profession, helping other people try and resolve their disputes amicably without blowing vast amounts of money on litigation. Um, that's what mediation is about. Adjudication, a lot of you know, more senior practitioners try and get into adjudication as well because, again, it's another way of giving back to the profession. And it's just looking at the profession from a different perspective. As an adjudicator, you're the one who's making the decision and listening to the arguments. Um, it's kind of, you know, a nice way to, uh, you know, to segue out of out of the law after a, a long career uh, in the profession. It's just a nice way to to kind of end it, um, doing that, that kind of work. But you know, keep an open mind. Don't just, you know, follow the sheep off the cliff because you think, you know, that this is what you have to do. You think that you have to be a Bay Street lawyer, make, you know, work in 18 hours a day. And that somehow if you're not that, there's something wrong with you. I mean, that's just wrong thinking as far as I'm concerned. Right thinking is to, to sit down and again, self-reflect, talk to other people, figure out what it is that moves you within the law and then try and and try and work towards that because the law is just i mean it's a huge it's a vast area uh, compartmentalized into a lot of different practice areas um and the last thing you want is to be you know to be stuck in an area of practice that you don't like um because that's you know that will just be uh, unfulfilling. I was going to say miserable, and I guess I just did. But unfulfilling, <laughs> and you and you and you want you want to enjoy what you do. You don't want to do you want, you don't want to be stuck in something that you don't like. That's just a, a recipe for disaster, I think. Uh, to be stuck doing something that you don't like, and. You may find out after a few years of thinking that this is what you wanted to do, but it's not. Like, you may fancy yourself a civil litigator, and three or four years in, you think, oh, I don't want to do this. Well, you know, you've learned the law. You can change. You can move in a different direction. You can decide maybe real estate is more up your alley or, or another area of practice, or maybe private practice isn't for you at all. Maybe you're thinking in-house. Lots of options. Just keep all the doors open, and um, and take the time to stay mentally and physically healthy, because the profession can be all-consuming. Um, you, you can give twenty-five hours a day to that profession, and it'll it'll want more. Um, so you have to make sure that you keep a balance. Those are my thoughts. Our guest for today has been Jack Dater. Uh, Jack, thank you for being part of the Law School Show. Well, thank you for having me, William. Uh, I appreciate the time, and I appreciate reaching out and talking to uh, to people at a very early stage in the profession. I wish everybody you know, the best of success, whatever that looks like. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify. 
or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.